CD5 The back way led to a narrow path and a small gate in the wall. Dismembered wooden dummies and patches of scorched rock indicated that Q and his assistants often came this way. And then there was another path beside one of the many icy streamlets. Q means well, said Lutze, walking fast, but if you listen to him you end up clanking when you walk and exploding when you sit down. Lobsang ran to keep up. It'll take weeks to walk to Ankh-Morpork, pork sweeper. We'll slice our way there, said Lutze, and he stopped and turned. You think you can do that? I've done it hundreds of times, Lobsang began. In Oi Dong, yes, said Lutze, but there are all kinds of checks and safeguards in the valley. Oh, didn't you know that? Slicing in Oi Dong is easy, lad. It's different out there. The air tries to get in the way. Do it wrong and the air is as a rock. You have to shape the slice around you so that you move like a fish in water. Now how to do that? We learned a bit of the theory, but Sotal said you stopped time for yourself back in the city. The stance of the coyote, it's called, very hard to do, and I don't reckon they teach it in the thieves' guild, eh? I suppose I was lucky, sweeper. Good. Keep it up. We'll have plenty of time for you to practice before we leave the snow. Get it right before you tread on grass or kiss your feet goodbye. They called it slicing time. There is a way of playing certain musical instruments that is called circular breathing, devised to allow people to play the didgeridoo or the bagpipes without actually imploding or being sucked down the tube. Slicing time was very much the same, except time was substituted for air and it was a lot quieter. A trained monk could stretch a second further than an hour. But that wasn't enough. He'd be moving in a rigid world, He'd have to learn to see by echo light and hear by ghost sound and let time leach into his immediate universe. It wasn't hard once he found the confidence. The sliced world could almost seem normal, apart from the colours. It was like walking in sunsets. Although the sun was fixed high in the sky and barely moved, the world ahead shaded towards violet and the world behind, when Lobsang looked round, was the shade of old blood. And it was lonely. But the worst of it, Lobsang realised, was the silence. There was noise of a sort, but it was just a deep sizzle at the edge of hearing. His footsteps sounded strange and muffled, and the sound arrived in his ears out of sync with the tread of his feet. They reached the edge of the valley and stepped out of the perpetual springtime into the real world of the snows. Now the cold crept in slowly like a sadist's knife. Lutze strode on ahead, seemingly oblivious to it. Of course, that was one of the stories about him, Lutze, it was said, would walk for miles during weather when the clouds themselves would freeze and crash out of the sky. Cold did not affect him, they said, and yet, in the stories Lutze had been bigger, stronger, not a skinny little bald man who preferred not to fight. Sweeper! Lutze stopped and turned. His outline blurred slightly, and Lobsang unwrapped himself from time. Colour came back into the world, and while the cold ceased to have the force of a drill, it still struck hard. Yes, lad? You're going to teach me, right? If there's anything left you don't know, wonder boy, said Lutze dryly. You're slicing well, I can see that. I don't know how you can stand this cold. Ah, you don't know the secret. Is it the way of Mrs Cosmopolite that gives you such power? Lutze hitched up his robe and did a little dance in the snow, revealing skinny legs encased in thick yellowing tubes. Very good, very good, he said. 
She still sends me these double-knit combinations, silk on the inside, then three layers of wool, reinforced gussets and a couple of handy trapdoors. Very reasonably priced at six dollars a pair because I'm an old customer. For it is written, wrap up warm or you'll catch your death. It's just a trick. Lutze looked surprised. What? he said. Well, I mean, it's all tricks, isn't it? Everyone thinks you're a great hero and you don't fight and they think you possess all kinds of strange knowledge and... And it's just tricking people, isn't it? Even the abbot. I thought you were going to teach me things worth knowing. I've got her address, if that's what you want. If you mention my name... I... Oh, I see, you didn't mean that, right? I don't want to be ungrateful. I just thought you thought I should use mysterious powers derived from a lifetime of study just to keep my legs warm, eh? Well, debase the sacred teachings for the sake of my knees, you think? If you put it like that, then... Something made Lobsang look down. He was standing in six inches of snow. Lutze was not. His sandals were standing in two puddles. The ice was melting away around his toes, his pink, warm toes. Toes, now, that's another matter, said the sweeper. Mrs Cosmopolite is a wizard with long johns, but she can't turn a heel worth a dam. Lobsang looked up into a wink. Always remember rule one, eh? Lutze patted the shaken boy on the arm. "'But you're doing well,' he said. "'Let's have a quiet sit-down and a brew-up.' He pointed to some rocks, which at least offered some protection from the wind. Snow had piled up against them in big white mounds. "'Lute say?' "'Yes, lad?' "'I've got a question. Can you give me a straight answer?' "'I'll try, of course.' "'What the hell is going on?' Lute say brushed the snow off a rock. "'Oh,' he said. One of the difficult questions. Igor had to admit it. When it came to getting weird things done, Sane beat mad hands down. He'd been used to masters who, despite doing wonderful handstands on the edge of the mental catastrophe curve, couldn't put their own trousers on without a map. Like all Igors, he'd learned how to deal with them. In truth, it wasn't a difficult job, although sometimes you had to work the graveyard shift. And once you got them settled into their routine, you could get on with your own work and they wouldn't bother you until the lightning rod needed raising. It wasn't like that with Jeremy. He was truly a man you could set your watch by. Igor had never seen a life so organised, so slimmed down, so timed. He found himself thinking of his new master as the TikTok man. One of Igor's former masters had made a TikTok man, all levers and gear wheels and cranks and clockwork. Instead of a brain, it had a long tape punched with holes. Instead of a heart, it had a big spring. Provided everything in the kitchen was very carefully positioned, the thing could sweep the floor and make a passable cup of tea. If everything wasn't carefully positioned, or if the ticking, clicking thing hit an unexpected bump, then it had stripped the plaster off the walls and make a furious cup of cat. Then his master had conceived the idea of making the thing live, so that it could punch its own tapes and wind its own spring. Igor, who knew exactly when to follow instructions to the letter, dutifully rigged up the classic rising table and lightning rod arrangement on the evening of really good storm. He didn't see exactly what happened thereafter, because he wasn't there when the lightning hit the clockwork. No, Igor was at a dead run halfway down the hill to the village, with all his possessions in a carpet bag. Even so, a white-hot cogwheel had whirred over his head and buried itself in a tree trunk. Loyalty to a master was very important, but it took second place to loyalty to Igordom. 
If the world was going to be full of lurching servants, then they were damn well going to be called Igor. It seemed to this Igor that if you could make a tick-tock man live, he'd be like Jeremy, and Jeremy was ticking faster as the clock neared completion. Igor didn't much like the clock. He was a people person. He preferred things that bled, and as the clock grew, with its shimmering crystal parts that didn't seem entirely all here, so Jeremy grew more absorbed and Igor grew more tense. There was definitely something new happening here, and while Igors were avid to learn new things, there were limits. Igors did not believe in forbidden knowledge and things man was not meant to know, but obviously there were some things a man was not meant to know, such as what it felt like to have every single particle of your body sucked into a little hole, and it seemed to be one of the options available in the immediate future. And then there was Lady Lejean. She gave Igor the willies, and he was not a man usually subject even to the smallest willy. She wasn't a zombie and she wasn't a vampire, because she didn't smell like one. She didn't smell like anything. In Igor's experience, everything smelt like something. And there was the other matter. Our feet don't touch the ground, sir, he said. Of course they do, said Jeremy, buffing up part of the mechanism with his sleeve. She'll be here again in a minute and seventeen seconds, and I'm sure her feet will be touching the ground. Oh, sometimes they do, sir. But you watch when she goes up or down a step, sir. She doesn't get it exactly right, sir. You can just see the shadow under her soles. Soothe? On her feet, sir, sighed Igor. The lisp could be a problem, and in truth any Igor could easily fix it. But it was part of being an Igor. You might as well stop limping. Go and get ready by the door, said Jeremy. Floating in the air does not make you a bad person. Igor shrugged. He was entertaining the idea that it didn't mean you were a person at all, and incidentally he was rather worried that Jeremy seemed to have dressed himself with a little more care this morning. He decided in these circumstances not to broach the subject of his hiring, but he had been working that one out. He'd been hired before her ladyship had engaged Jeremy to do his work. Well, all that showed was that she knew her man. But she'd hired him herself in Bart Shoeshine, and he'd got himself onto the mail coach that very day. And it turned out that Lady Lejean had visited Jeremy on that day too. The only thing faster than the mail coach between Uberwald and Ankh-Morpork was magic, unless someone had found a way to travel by semaphore. And Lady Lejean hardly looked like a witch. The shop's clocks were putting up a barrage of noise to signal the passing of seven o'clock when Igor opened the front door. It always did to anticipate the knock. Not did anything, just did. Some things were done, and some things were not done. And the things that were done, Igor's did. That was another part of the code of the Igor's. He wrenched it open. Two pints, sir, lovely and fresh,' said Mr Soak, handing him the bottles. "'And a day like this just says fresh cream, doesn't it?' Igor glared at him, but took the bottles. "'I prefer it when it's going green,' he said haughtily. "'Good day to you, Mr. Thoke.' He shut the door. "'It wasn't her,' said Jeremy, when he arrived back in the workshop. "'It was the milkman, sir.' "'She's twenty-five seconds late,' said Jeremy, looking concerned. "'Do you think anything could have happened to her?' "'Real ladies are often fashionably late, sir,' said Igor, putting the milk away. It was icy cold under his fingers. Well, I'm sure her ladyship is a real lady. 
I wouldn't know about that, sir, said Igor, who in fact had the aforesaid very strong doubts in that area. He walked back into the shop and took up position with his hand on the door handle just as the knock came. Lady Lejean swept past Igor. The two trolls ignored him and took up their positions just inside the workshop. Igor put them down as hired rock, anyone's for two dollars a day plus walking around money. Her ladyship was impressed. The big clock was nearing completion. It wasn't the squat, blocky thing that Igor's grandfather had told him about. Jeremy had, much to Igor's surprise, for there wasn't a scrap of decoration anywhere in the house, gone for the impressive look. "'Your grandfather helped make the first one,' Jeremy had said. "'So let's build a grandfather clock, eh?' And there it stood, a slim, long-case clock in crystal and spun glass, reflecting the light in worrying ways. Igor had spent a fortune in the Street of Cunning Artificers. For enough money you could buy anything in Ankh-Morpork, and that included people. He'd made sure that no crystal cutter or glass worker had done enough of the work to give them any sort of clue about the finished clock, but he'd worried needlessly about that. Money could buy a lot of uninterest. Besides, who would believe that you could measure time with crystals? Only in the workshop did it all come together. Igor bustled around polishing things, listening carefully as Jeremy showed off his creation. "'No need for any metal parts,' he was saying. "'We've come up with a way of making the tamed lightning flow across glass, "'and we've found a workman who can make glass that bends slightly.' "'We,' Igor noticed. "'Well, that was always the way of it. "'We discovering things meant the master asking for them "'and Igor thinking them up. "'Anyway, the flow of lightning was a family passion. "'With sand and chemicals and a few secrets, "'you could make lightning sit up and beg.' Lady Lejean reached out with a gloved hand and touched the side of the clock. "'This is the divider mechanism,' Jeremy began, picking up a crystalline array from the workbench. But her ladyship was still staring up at the clock. "'You've given it a face and hands,' she said. "'Why?' "'Oh, it will function very well in the measurement of traditional time,' said Jeremy. "'Glass gears throughout, of course. In theory, it will never need adjusting. It will take its time from the universal tick.' "'Ah, you have found it?' Then, the time it takes the smallest possible thing that can happen to happen, I know it exists. She looked almost impressed. But the clock is still unfinished. There is a certain amount of trial and error, said Jeremy, but we will do it. Igor says there will be a big storm on Monday. That should provide the power, he says, and then... Jeremy's face lit up with a smile. I see no reason why every clock in the world shouldn't say precisely the same time. Lady Lejean glanced at Igor, who bustled with renewed haste. "'The servant is satisfactory?' "'Oh, he grumbles a bit, but he has got a good heart, and, and a spare, apparently. He is amazingly skilled in all crafts, too.' "'Yes, Igors generally are,' said the lady distantly. "'They seem to have mastered the art of inheriting talents.' She snapped her fingers, and one of the trolls stepped forward and produced a couple of bags. "'Gold and Invar!' she said, as promised. <laughs> but Invar will be worthless when we finish the clock, said Jeremy. We're sorry? You want more gold? No, 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 you've been very generous. Right, thought Igor, dusting the workbench vigorously. Until next time, then, said Lady Lejean. The trolls were already turning towards the door. You'll be here for the start, said Jeremy. 
as Igor hurried into the hall to open the front door, because, whatever he thought about her ladyship, there was such a thing as tradition. Possibly. But we have every confidence in you, Jeremy. Um... Igor stiffened. He hadn't heard that tone in Jeremy's voice. In the voice of a master, it was a bad tone. Jeremy took a deep, nervous breath, as if contemplating some minute and difficult piece of clockwork that would, without tremendous care, unwind catastrophically and spray cogwheels across the floor. Um, I was wondering, um, your ladyship, um, perhaps, um, you would like to take dinner with me, um, tonight, um, um. Jeremy smiled. Igor had seen a better smile on a corpse. Lady Lejean's expression flickered. It really did. It seemed to Igor to go from one expression to another, as if they were a series of still pictures, with no perceptible movement of the features between each one. It went from her usual blankness to sudden thoughtfulness, and then all the way to amazement. And then, to Igor's own astonishment, it began to blush. "'Why, Mr. Jeremy, I, I don't know what to say,' her ladyship stammered, her icy composure turning to a warm puddle. "'I really... I don't know... Uh, "'Perhaps some other time. "'I do have an important engagement. "'So glad to have met you. "'I must be going. "'Goodbye.' "'Igor stood stiffly to attention, "'as upright as the average Igor could manage, "'and almost shut the door behind her ladyship "'as she hurried out of the building down the steps. "'She ended up, just for a moment, "'half an inch above the street. "'It was only for a moment, "'and then she drifted downwards.' No one except Igor, glaring balefully through the crack between door and frame, could possibly have noticed. He darted back into the workshop. Jeremy still stood transfixed, blushing as pinkly as her ladyship had done. "'I'll just be nipping out to get that new glass work for the multiplier, sir,' Igor said quickly. "'It should be done by now, yes?' Jeremy spun on his heel and marched very quickly over to the workbench. Uh, "'You do that, Igor, thank you.' he said, his voice slightly muffled. Lady Lejean's party were down the street when Igor slipped out and moved quickly into the shadows. At the crossroad, her ladyship waved one hand vaguely, and the trolls headed off by themselves. Igor stayed with her. For all the trademark limp, Igor's could move fast when they had to. They often had to, when the mob hit the windmill. Igor's were loyal, but they were not stupid. A job was a job. When an employer had no further use for your services, for example, because he'd just been staked through the heart by a crowd of angry villagers, it was time to move on, before they decided that you ought to be on the next stake. And Igor soon learned a secret way out of any castle, and where to stash an overnight bag. In the words of one of the founding Igors, Are we belong dead? Excuse me, where does it say we? Out in the open, he could see more wrong things. She didn't move quite right. It was as though she was controlling her body rather than letting it control itself. That's what humans did. Even zombies got the hang of things after a while. The effect was subtle, but Igor's had very good eyesight. She moved like someone unused to wearing skin. The quarry headed down a narrow street, and Igor half hoped that some of the thieves' guild were around. He'd very much like to see what happened if one of them gave her the tap on the noggin that was their prelude to negotiations. One had tried it with Igor yesterday, and if the man had been surprised at the metallic clang, he'd have been astonished to have his arm grabbed and broken with anatomical exactitude. In fact, she turned into an alleyway between a couple of the buildings. 
Igor hesitated. Letting yourself be outlined in the daylight at the mouth of an alley was item one on the local checklist of death. But on the other hand, he wasn't actually doing anything wrong, was he? And she didn't look armed. There was no sound of footsteps in the alley. He waited a moment and stuck his head round the corner. There was no sign of Lady Lejean. There was also no way out of the alley. It was a dead end, full of rubbish. But there was a fading grey shape in the air which vanished even as he stared. It was a hooded robe grey as fog. It merged into the general gloom and disappeared. She turned into an alleyway, and then she turned into something else. Igor felt his hands twitch. Individual Igors might have their particular specialities, but they were all expert surgeons and had an inbuilt desire not to see any body wasted. Up in the mountains, where most of the employment was for woodchoppers and miners, having an Igor living locally was considered very fortunate. There was always the risk of an axe bouncing or a saw blade running wild, and then a man was glad to have an Igor around who could lend a hand, or even an entire arm if you were lucky. And while they practised their skills freely and generously in the community, the Igors were even more careful to use them amongst themselves. Magnificent eyesight, a stout pair of lungs, a wonderful digestive system. It was terrible to think of such wonderful workmanship going to the worms. So they made sure it didn't. They kept it in the family. Igor really did have his grandfather's hands, and now they were bunching into fists all by themselves. Tick! A very small kettle burned on a fire of wood shavings and dried yak dung. It was a long time ago, said Lutze. Exactly when doesn't matter cause of what happened. In fact, asking exactly when doesn't make any sense any more. It depends where you are. In some places it was hundreds of years ago. In some places, well, maybe it hasn't happened yet. There was this man in Uberwald. He invented a clock, an amazing clock. It measured... The tick of the universe. Know what that is? No. Me neither. The abbot's your man for that kind of stuff. Let me see. Okay. Think of the smallest amount of time that you can. Really small. So tiny that a second would be like a billion years. Got that? Well, the cosmic quantum tick. That's what the abbot calls it. The cosmic quantum tick is much smaller than that. It's the time it takes to go from now to then. The time it takes an atom to think of wobbling. It's... It's the time it takes for the smallest thing that's possible to happen to happen, said Lobsang. Exactly. Well done, said Lutze. He took a deep breath. It's also the time it takes for the whole universe to be destroyed in the past and rebuilt in the future. Don't look at me like that. That's what the abbot said. Has it been happening while we've been talking, said Lobsang? Millions of times... An oodle-plex of times, probably. How many is that? It's one of the abbot's words. It means more numbers than you can imagine in a yonk. What's a yonk? A very long time. And we don't feel it. The universe is destroyed, and we don't feel it. They say not. That first time it was explained to me, I got a bit jumpy, but it's far too quick for us to notice. Lobsang stared at the snow for a while. Then he said, All right, go on. Someone in Oberwald built this clock out of glass, powered by lightning, as I recall. It somehow got down to a level where it could tick with the universe. 
Why did he want to do that? Listen, he lived in a big old castle on a crag in Ubervelt. People like that don't need a reason apart from because I can. They have a nightmare and try to make it happen. But, look, you can't make a clock like that because it's inside the universe, so it'll get rebuilt when the universe does, right? Lutze looked impressed and said so. I'm impressed, he said. It'd be like opening a box with the crowbar that's inside. The abbot believes that part of the clock was outside, though. You can't have something outside that tells that to a man who has been working on the problem for nine lifetimes, said Lutze. You want to hear the rest of the story? Yes, sweeper. So, we were spread pretty thin in those days, but there was this young sweeper... You, said Lobsang. This is going to be you, right? Yes, yes, said Lutze testily. I was sent to Ubervelt. History hadn't diverged much in those days, and we knew something big was going to happen around Bart Shushine. I must have spent weeks looking. You know how many remote castles there are along those gorges? You can't move for remote castles. That's why you didn't find the right one in time, said Lobsang. I remember what you told the abbot. I was just down in the valley when the lightning struck the tower, said Lutze. You know, it is written, big events always cast their shadows but I couldn't detect where it was happening until too late. A half-mile sprint uphill faster than a lightning bolt. No one could do that. Nearly made it, though. I was actually through the door when it all went to hell. No point in blaming yourself, then. Yes, but you know how it is. You keep thinking, if only I'd got up earlier or gone a different way, said Lutze. And the clock struck, said Lobsang. No, it stuck. I told you part of it was outside the universe. It wouldn't go with the flow. It was trying to count the tick, not move with it. But the universe is huge. It can't be stopped by a piece of clockwork. Lutze flicked the end of his cigarette into the fire. The abbot says the size wouldn't make any difference at all, he said. Look, it's taken him nine lifetimes to know what he knows, so it's not our fault if we can't understand it, is it? History shattered. It was the only thing that could give. Very strange thing. There were cracks left all over the place. The, oh, I can't remember the words, the fastenings that tell bits of the past which bits of the present they belong to, they were flapping all over the place. Some got lost forever. Lutze stared into the dying flames. We stitched it up as best we could, he added. Up and down history, filling up holes with bits of time taken from somewhere else. It's a patchwork, really. Didn't people notice? Why should they? Once we'd done it, it had always been like that. You'd be amazed at what we got away with. For instance, I'm sure they'd spot it somehow. Lutze gave Lobsang one of his sidelong glances. Funny you should say that. I've always wondered about it. People say things like, where did the time go? And it seems like only yesterday. We had to do it anyway, and it's yielded up very nicely. But people would look in the history books and see, words, lad, that's all. Anyway... People have been messing around with time ever since there were people. Wasting it, killing it, sparing it, making it up. And they do it. People's heads were made to play with time, just like we do, except we're better trained and have a few extra skills. And we've spent centuries working to bring it all back in line. You watch the procrastinators, even on a quiet day, moving time, stretching it here, compressing it there. It's a big job. I'm not going to see it smashed a second time. A second time, there won't be enough left to repair. He stared at the embers. Funny thing, he said. 
Gwen himself had some very curious ideas about time come to finish. Wrote some very strange stuff. He reckoned time was alive. He said it acted like a living thing anyway. Very strange ideas indeed. He said he'd met time and she was a woman. To him anyway. Everyone says that that was just a very complicated metaphor and maybe I was simply hit on the head or something. But on that day, I looked at the glass clock just as it exploded and... He stood up and grabbed his broom. Best foot forward, lad. Another two or three seconds and we'll be down in Bong Put. What were you going to say? said Lobsang, hurrying to his feet. Oh, just an old man rambling, said Lutsang. The mind wanders a bit when you get over 700. Let's get moving. Sweeper? Yes, lad? Why are we carrying spinners on our backs? All in good time, lad, I hope. We're carrying time, right? If time stops, we can keep going, like divers. Full marks. And? Another question? Time is a she. None of the teachers have mentioned it, and I don't recall anything in the scrolls. Don't you think about that. When wrote, well, the secret scroll, it's called. They keep it in a locked room. Only the abbots and the most senior monks ever get to see it. Lobsang couldn't let that one pass. So how did you... He began. Well, you wouldn't expect men like that to do the sweeping up in there, would you? said Lutze. Terribly dusty it got. What was it about? I didn't read much of it. Didn't feel it was right, said Lutze. You? What was it about then? It was a love poem. And it was a good one. Lutze's image blurred as he sliced time. Then it faded and vanished. A line of footprints appeared across the snowfield. Lobsang wrapped time around himself and followed, and a memory came from nowhere at all. When was right. There were lots of places like the warehouse. There always are in every old city, no matter how valuable the building land is. Sometimes space just gets lost. A workshop is built, and then another beside it. Factories and storerooms and sheds and temporary lean-tos crawl towards one another, meet and merge. Spaces between outside walls are roofed with tar paper. Odd-shaped bits of ground are colonised by nailing up a bit of wall and cutting a doorway. Old doorways are masked by piles of lumber or new tool racks. The old men, who knew what was there, move on and die, just like the flies who punctuate the thick cobwebs on the grubby windows. Young men in this noisome world of wearing lathes and paint shops and cluttered workbenches don't have time to explore. And so there were spaces like this. A small warehouse with a crusted skylight that no fewer than four factory owners thought was owned by one of the other three, when they thought about it at all. In fact, each of them owned one wall, and certainly no one recalled who roofed the space. Beyond the walls on all four sides, men and dwarfs bent iron, sawed planks, made string and turned screws. But in here was a silence known only to rats. The air moved for the first time in years. Dust balls rolled across the floor. Little motes sparkled and spun in the light that forced its way down from the roof. In the surrounding area, invisible and subtle, matter began to move. It came from workmen's sandwiches and gutter dirt and pigeon feathers, an atom here, a molecule there, and streamed unheeded into the centre of the space. It spiralled. Eventually it became, after passing through some strange, ancient and horrible shapes, Lady Lejeune. She staggered, but managed to stay upright. Other auditors also appeared, and as they did so, it seemed that they had never really not been there. 
The dead greyness of the lights merely took on shapes. They emerged like ships from a fog. You stared at the fog, and suddenly part of the fog was hull that had been there all along, and now there was nothing for it but to race for the lifeboats. Lady Lejean said, I cannot keep doing this, it is too painful. One said, Ah, can you tell us what pain is like? We have often wondered. No, no, I don't think I can. It is a, a body thing. It is not pleasant. From now on I will retain the body. One said, That could be dangerous. Lady Lejean shrugged. We have been through that before. It's only a matter of appearance, she said. And it is remarkable how much easier it is to deal with humans in this form. One said, You shrugged. And you are talking with your mouth. A hole for food and air. Yes, it is remarkable, isn't it? Lady Lejean's body found an old crate, pulled it over and sat on it. She hardly had to think about muscle movements at all. One said, You aren't eating, are you? As yet, no. One said, As yet? That raises the whole dreadful subject of orifices. One said, And how did you learn to shrug? It comes with the body, said her ladyship. We never realised this, did we? Most of the things it does, it appears to do automatically. Standing upright takes no effort whatsoever. The whole business gets easier every time. The body shifted position slightly and crossed its legs. Amazing, she thought. It did it to be comfortable. I didn't have to think about it at all. We never guessed. One said, There will be questions. The auditors hated questions. They hated them almost as much as they hated decisions, and they hated decisions almost as much as they hated the idea of the individual personality. But what they hated most was things moving around randomly. Believe me, everything will be fine, said Lady Lejean. We will not be breaking any of the rules after all. All that will happen is that time will stop. Everything thereafter will be neat, alive but not moving, tidy. One said, and we can get the filing finished. Exactly, said Lady Lejean. And he wants to do it. That is the strange thing. He hardly thinks about the consequences. One said, Splendid. There was one of those pauses when no one is quite ready to speak, and then one said, Tell us, what is it like? What is what like? One said, Being insane, being human. Strange, disorganised, several levels of thinking go on at once. There are things we have no word for. For example, the idea of eating seems now to have an attraction. The body tells me this. One said, attraction? As in gravity? Yes, one is drawn towards food. One said, food in large masses, even in small amounts. One said, but eating is simply a function. What is the attraction of performing a function? 
surely the knowledge that it is necessary for continued survival is sufficient. I cannot say, said Lady Lejean. One auditor said, you persist in using a personal pronoun. And one added, and you have not died. To be an individual is to live, and to live is to die. Yes, I know, but it is essential for humans to use the personal pronoun. It divides the universe into two parts, the darkness behind the eyes where the little voice is, and everything else. It is a horrible feeling. It is like being questioned all the time. One said, What is the little voice? Sometimes thinking is like talking to another person, but that person is also you. She could tell this disturbed the other auditors. I do not wish to continue in this way any longer than necessary, she added, and realised that she had lied. One said, We do not blame you. Lady Lejean nodded. The auditors could see into human minds. They could see the pop and sizzle of the thoughts, but they could not read them. They could see the energies flow from node to node. They could see the brain glittering like a hog's watch decoration. What they couldn't see was what was happening. So they'd built one. It was the logical thing to do. They'd used human agents before, because early on they'd worked out that there were many, many humans who would do anything for sufficient gold. This was puzzling, because gold did not seem to the auditors to hold any significant value for a human body. It needed iron and copper and zinc, but only the most minute traces of gold. Therefore, they'd reasoned, this was further evidence that the humans that required it were flawed, and this was why attempts to make use of them were doomed. But why were they flawed? Building a human being was easy. The auditors knew exactly how to move matter around. The trouble was that the result didn't do anything but lie there, and eventually decompose. This was annoying, since human beings without any special training or education seemed to be able to make working replicas quite easily. Then they learned that they could make a human body which worked if an auditor was inside it. There were, of course, huge risks. Death was one of them. The auditors avoided death by never going so far as to get a life. They strove to be as indistinguishable as hydrogen atoms, and with none of the latter's joie de vivre. Some luckless auditor might be risking death by operating the body, but lengthy consultation decided that if the driver took care and liaised at all times with the rest of the auditors, the risk was minimal and worth taking considering the goal. They built a woman. It was a logical choice. After all, while men wielded more obvious power than women, they often did so at the expense of personal danger, and no auditor liked the prospect of personal danger. Beautiful women often achieved great things, on the other hand, merely by smiling at powerful men. The whole subject of beauty caused the auditors a lot of difficulty. It made no sense at a molecular level, but research turned up the fact that the woman in the picture, Woman Holding Ferret by Leonard de Querm, was considered the epitome of beauty, and so they'd based Lady Lejean on that. They had made changes, of course. The face in the picture was asymmetrical and full of minor flaws which they had carefully removed. The result would have been successful beyond the auditor's wildest dreams, had they ever dreamed. 
Now that they had their stalking horse, their reliable human, anything was possible. They were learning fast, or at least collecting data, which they considered to be the same as learning. So was Lady Lejean. She had been a human for two weeks, two astonishing, shocking weeks. Whoever would have guessed that a brain operated like this, or that colours had a meaning that went way, way beyond spectral analysis? How could she even begin to describe the blueness of blue, or how much thinking the brain did all by itself? It was terrifying. Half the time her thoughts seemed not to be her own. She had been quite surprised to find that she did not want to tell the other auditors this. She did not want to tell them a lot of things. And she didn't have to. She had power. Oh, over Jeremy that was not in question, and was now, she had to admit, rather worrying. It was causing her body to do things by itself, like blush. But she had power over the other auditors, too. She made them nervous. Of course she wanted the project to work. It was their goal, a tidy and predictable universe where everything stayed in its place. If auditors dreamed, this would be another dream. Except... Except... The young man had smiled at her in a nervous, worrying way, and the universe was turning out to be a lot more chaotic than even the auditors had ever suspected. A lot of the chaos was happening inside Lady Lejean's head. Tick. Lutze and Lobsang passed through Bongfoot and Long Nap like ghosts in twilight. People and animals were bluish statues and were not, said Lutze, to be touched in any circumstances. Lutze restocked his travel bag with food from some of the houses, making sure to leave little copper tokens in their place. It means we're obliged to them, he said, filling Lobsang's bag as well. The next monk through here might have to give someone a minute or two. A minute or two isn't much. For a dying woman to say goodbye to her children, it's a lifetime, said Lutze. Is it not written every second counts? Let's go. I'm tired, sweeper. I did say every second counts, but everyone has to sleep. Yes, but not yet, Lutze insisted. We can rest in the caves down at Song Set. Can't fold time while you're asleep, see? Can't we use the spinners? In theory, yes. In theory, they could wind out time for us. We'd only sleep for a few seconds. They're for emergencies only, said Lutze bluntly. How do you define an emergency, sweeper? An emergency is when I decide it's time to use a clockwork spinner designed by Q, Wonderboy. A life belt's for saving your life. That's when I'll trust an uncalibrated, unblessed spinner powered by springs when I have to. I know Q says... Lobsang blinked and shook his head. Lutze grabbed his arm. You felt something again? Ugh. Like having a tooth out in my brain, said Lobsang, rubbing his head. He pointed. It came from over there. A pain came from over there, said Lutze. He glared at the boy. Like last time? But we've never found a way of detecting which way. He stopped and rummaged in his sack. Then he used the sack to sweep snow off a flat boulder. We'll see what... Glass house. This time Lobsang could concentrate on the tones that filled the air. Wet finger on a wine glass... Well, he could start there, but the finger would have to be the finger of a god on the glass of some celestial sphere, and the wonderful, 
complex, shifting tones did not simply fill the air, they were the air. The moving blur beyond the walls was getting closer now. It was just beyond the closest wall, then it found the open doorway and vanished. Something was behind Lobsang. He turned. There was nothing there that he could see, but he felt movement, and just for a moment something warm brushed his cheek. "'The sand says,' said Lutze, tipping the contents of a small bag onto the rock. The coloured grains bounced and spread. They did not have the sensitivity of the mandala itself, but there was a blue bloom in the chaos. He gave Lobsang a sharp look. "'It's been proved that no one can do what you just did,' he said. "'We've never found any way of detecting where a disturbance in time is actually being caused.' Uh, "'Sorry?' Lobsang raised a hand to his cheek. It was damp. "'Uh, what did I do?' "'It takes a huge—' Lutze stopped. "'Ain't more porks that way,' he said. "'Did you know that?' "'No. Anyway, you said you had a feeling things would happen in Ankh-Morpork. "'Yes, but I've had a lifetime of experience and cynicism,' Lutze scooped the sand back into its bag. "'You're just gifted. Come on!' Four more seconds, sliced thinly, took them below the snow line into scree slopes that slid under their feet and then through alder forests not much taller than themselves. And it was there they met the hunters, gathered round in a wide circle. The men did not pay them much attention— Monks were commonplace in these parts. The leader, or at least the one who was shouting, and this is usually the leader, looked up and waved them past. Lutze stopped, though, and looked amiably at the thing in the centre of the circle. It looked back at him. "'Good catch,' he said. "'What are you going to do now, boys?' "'Is it any business of yours?' said the leader. "'No, no, just asking,' said Lutze. "'You boys up from the lowlands, yes?' "'Yeah, you'll be amazed at what you can get for catching one of these.' "'Yes,' said Lutze. "'You would be amazed.' Lobsang looked at the hunters. There were more than a dozen of them, all heavily armed, and watching Lutze carefully. Nine hundred dollars for a good pelt, and another thousand for the feet,' said their leader. "'That much, eh?' said Lutze. "'That's a lot of money for a pair of feet.' "'That's cause they're big feet,' said the hunter." "'And you know what they say about men with big feet, eh?' "'They need bigger shoes?' "'Yeah, right,' said the hunter, grinning. "'Load of nonsense, really. "'But this rich old boys with young wives over on the counterweight continent "'will pay a fortune for their powdered yeti foot.' "'And there was me, thinking they're a protected species,' said Lutze, "'leaning his broom against a tree. "'They're only a kind of troll. "'Who is going to protect them out here?' said the hunter. Behind him, the local guides, who did know Rule One, turned and ran. "'Me,' said Lutze. "'Oh,' said the hunter, and this time the grin was nasty. "'You don't even have a weapon,' he turned to look at the fleeing guides. "'You're one of the weird monks from up in the valleys, aren't you?' "'That's right,' said Lutze. "'Small, grinning, weird monk, totally unarmed.' "'And there's fifteen of us,' said the hunter, "'well armed as you can see.' "'It's very important that you are all heavily armed,' said Lutze, "'pulling his sleeves out of the way. "'It makes it fairer.' "'He rubbed his hands together. "'No one seemed inclined to retreat. Uh, "'Any of you boys heard of any rules?' he said after a while. "'Rules?' said one of the hunters. "'What rules?' 
Oh, you know, said Lutzay, rules like rule two, say, or rule 27, any kind of rules of that sort of description? The leading hunter frowned. What in damnation are you talking about, mister? Eh, uh, not so much a mister as a small, rather knowing, elderly, entirely unarmed, weird monk, said Lutzay. I'm just wondering if there is anything about this situation that makes you, you know, slightly nervous? You mean us being well armed and outnumbering you and you backing away like that? said one of the hunters. Ah, uh, yes, said Lutzay. Perhaps we're up against a cultural thing here. I know. How about this? He stood on one leg, wobbling a little, and raised both hands. I hi ho yeah he no anyone there was a certain amount of bewilderment amongst the hunters is it a book said one who was slightly intellectual how many words what i'm trying to find out here said lutze is whether you have any idea what happens when a lot of big armed men try to attack a small elderly unarmed monk "'To the best of my knowledge,' said the intellectual of the group, "'he turns out to be a very unlucky monk.' Lutze shrugged. "'Ah, oh, well,' he said, "'then we'll just have to try it the hard way.' A blur in the air hit the intellectual on the back of the neck. The leader stirred to step forward and learned too late that his bootlaces were tied together. Men reached for knives that were no longer in sheaths, for swords that were inexplicably leaning against a tree on the far side of the clearing. Legs were swept up from underneath them, invisible elbows connected with soft parts of their bodies. Blows rained out of the empty air. Those who fell down learned to stay that way. A raised head hurt. The group was reduced to men lying humbly on the ground, groaning gently. It was then that they heard a low, rhythmic sound. The yeti was clapping. It had to be a slow hand clap because of the creature's long arms, but when the hands met, they'd come a long way and were glad to see one another. They echoed around the mountains. Lutze reached down and raised the leader's chin. If you have enjoyed this afternoon, please tell your friends, he said. Tell them to remember rule one. He let the chin go and walked across to the yeti and bowed. "'Shall I release you, sir, or would you like to do it yourself?' he said. The yeti stood up, looked down at the cruel iron trap around one leg, and concentrated for a moment. At the end of the moment, the yeti was a little way from the trap, which was still set and almost hidden in leaves. "'Well done,' said Lutze. "'Methodical and very smooth. Headed down to the lowlands?' The yeti had to bend double to bring its long face close to Lutze. "'Yours?' it said. "'What do you want to do with these people?' "'The yeti looked round at the cowering hunters. "'It being dark soon,' he said. "'No guides now.' "'They've got torches,' said Lutze. "'Ha, ha,' said the yeti, "'and it said it rather than laughed. "'That's good. Torches show up at night.' "'Ha, yeah. Can you give us a lift? It's really important.' "'You and that wheezing kid I see in there?' A patch of grey air at the edge of the clearing became Lobsang out of breath. He dropped the broken branch he'd been holding. Uh, the lad is called Lobsang. I'm training him up, said Lutze. Looks like you got a hurry before you're running out of things you don't know, said the Yeti. Ha, ha. 
Sweeper, what were you... Lobsang began hurrying forward. Lutze put his finger to his lips. Not in front of our fallen friends, he said. I'm looking for Rule 1 to become a lot better respected in these parts as a result of this day's work. But I had to do all the... We must be going, said Lutze, waving him into silence. I reckon we can snooze quite happily while our friend here carries us. Lobsang glanced up at the Yeti and then back at Lutze, and then back to the Yeti. It was tall. In some ways it was like the trolls he'd met in the city, but rolled out thin. It was more than twice as high as he was, and most of the extra height was skinny legs and arms. The body was a ball of fur, and the feet were, indeed, huge. "'If he could have got out of the trap at any—' he began. "'You are the apprentice, right?' said Lutze. "'Me? I'm the master? I'm sure I wrote that down somewhere.' "'But you said you weren't going to say any of those know-it-all—' "'Remember rule one. Oh, and pick up one of those swords. We'll need it in a minute. Okay, Your Honour.' The Yeti picked them up gently and firmly, cradled them in the crook of each arm, and strode away through the snow and trees. "'Snark, eh?' said Lutze after a while. "'Their wool is spun at a rock in some way, but it's pretty comfy.' There was no answer from the other arm. "'I spent some time with the Yetis,' said Lutze. "'Amazing people. They taught me a thing or two. Valuable stuff. For is it not written? We live and learn.' Silence. A kind of... Sullen, deliberate silence reigned. "'I'd think myself lucky if I was a boy your age "'actually being carried by an actual yeti. "'A lot of people back in the valley have never even seen one. "'Mind you, they don't come that close to settlements any more. "'Not since that rumour about their feet got around.' Lutze got the feeling that he was taking part in a dialogue of one. "'Something you want to say, is there?' he said. "'Well, as a matter of fact, yes, there is, actually,' said Lobsang. "'You let me do all the work back there. "'You weren't going to do anything.' "'I was making sure I had their full attention,' said Lutze smoothly. "'Why?' "'So that you didn't have their full attention. "'I had every confidence in you, of course. "'A good master gives the pupil an opportunity to demonstrate his skills.' "'And what would you have done if I hadn't been there, pray?' "'Yes, probably,' said Lutze. "'What?' "'But I expect I would have found some way "'to use their stupidity against them,' said Lutze. "'There generally is one. "'Is there a problem here?' "'Well, I just... "'I thought... "'Well, I just thought you'd be teaching me more, that's all.' "'I'm teaching you things all the time,' said Lutze. "'You might not be learning them, of course.' "'Oh, I see,' said Lobsang, very smug.' "'Are you going to try to teach me about this yeti, then, "'and why you made me bring a sword?' "'You'll need the sword to learn about yetis,' said Lutze. "'How?' "'In a few minutes we'll find a nice place to stop, "'and you can cut his head off. "'Is that all right why you, sir?' "'Yes, sure,' said the yeti. "'In the second scroll of When the Eternally Surprised, "'a story is written concerning one day "'when the apprentice Clodpool, in a rebellious mood, "'approached Wen and spake thusly.' "'Master, what is the difference between a humanistic, monastic system of belief "'in which wisdom is sought by means of an apparently nonsensical system of questions and answers "'and a lot of mystic gibberish made up on the spur of the moment?' "'Wen considered this for some time and at last said, "'Ah, fish. 
and Clodpool went away satisfied. Tick. The code of the Igors was very strict. Never contradict. It was no part of an Igor's job to say things like, No, sir, that's an artery. The master was always right. Never complain. An Igor would never say, But that's a thousand miles away. Never make personal remarks. No Igor would ever dream of saying anything like, I thought have something done about that laugh if I were the old. And never, ever ask questions. Admittedly, Igor knew that meant never ask big questions. Would fur like a cup of tea around now? Was fine. But what do you need a hundred virgins for? Or where do you expect me to find a brain at this time of night? Was not. An Igor stood for loyal, dependable, discreet service with a smile, or at least a sort of lopsided grin, or possibly just a curved scar in the right place. And it has to be said that there was nothing intrinsically evil about Igors themselves. They just didn't pass judgment on other people. Admittedly, that was because if you worked for werewolves and vampires, and people who looked on surgery as modern art rather than science, passing judgment would mean you'd never have time to get anything done. And therefore, Igor was getting worried. Things were wrong, and when an Igor thinks that, they are really wrong. Great difficulty lay in getting this across to Jeremy without breaking the code, though. Igor was increasingly ill at ease with someone so clearly stark, staring, sane. Nevertheless, he tried. "'Her ladyship will be along again this morning,' he said, as they watched yet another crystal grow in its solution. I know you know that, he thought, because you smoothed your hair down with soap and put on a clean shirt. Yes, said Jeremy. I wish we had better progress to report. However, I'm sure we're nearly there now. Yes, that's very strange, isn't it? said Igor, seizing the opening. Strange, you say? Call me Mr. Silly, sir, but it seems to me that we're always on the point of success when her ladyship pays us a visit. But when she's gone, we experience new difficulties. What are you suggesting, Igor? Me, sir? I'm not a suggestive person, sir. But last time, part of the divider array had cracked. You know, I think that was because of dimensional instability. Yes, sir. Why are you giving me that funny look, Igor? Igor shrugged. That is, one shoulder was momentarily as high as the other one. Goes with the faith, sir. She'd hardly pay us so handsomely and then sabotage the project, would she? Why would she do that? Igor hesitated. He had his back right up against the code now. I am still wondering if these all see themes, sir. Sorry, I didn't catch that. I wonder if we can trust her, sir, said Igor patiently. Oh, "'Go and calibrate the complexity resonator, will you?' Grumbling, Igor obeyed. The second time Igor had followed their benefactor, she'd gone to a hotel. Next day she'd headed for a large house in King's Way, where she'd been met by an oily man who'd made a great play of presenting her with a key. Igor had followed the oleaginous man back to his office in a nearby street, where, because there are few things that are kept from a man with a face full of stitches he'd learned that she'd just bought the lease for a very large bar of gold. 
After that, Igor had resorted to an ancient Ankh-Morpork tradition and paid someone to follow her ladyship. There was enough gold in the workshop heavens knew, and the master took no interest in it. Lady Lejean went to the opera. Lady Lejean went to art galleries. Lady Lejean was living life to the fullest, except that Lady Lejean, as far as Igor could determine, never visited restaurants and had no food delivered to the house. Lady Lejean was up to something. Igor could spot this easily. Lady Lejean also did not appear in Twerp's Peerage or the Almanac de Gothic or any of the other reference books Igor had checked as a matter of course, which meant that she had something to hide. Of course, he had worked for masters who occasionally had a great deal to hide, sometimes in deep holes at midnight. But this situation was morally different for two reasons. Her ladyship wasn't his master, Jeremy was, and that was where his loyalty lay. And Igor had decided it was morally different. Now he reached the glass clock. It looked almost complete. Jeremy had designed a mechanism to go behind the face, and Igor had got it made up, all in glass. It had nothing whatsoever to do with the other mechanism, which flickered away down behind the pendulum and took up a disconcertingly small amount of room now that it was assembled. Quite a few of its parts were no longer sharing the same set of dimensions as the rest of it. But the clock had a face, and a face needed hands, and so the glass pendulum swung, and the glass hands moved and told normal everyday time. The tick had a slightly bell-like quality, as though someone were flicking a wine glass with a fingernail. Igor looked at his hand-me-down hands. They were beginning to worry him. Now that the glass clock looked like a clock, they began to shake every time Igor came near it. Tick. No one noticed Susan in the library of the Guild of Historians, leafing her way through a pile of books. Occasionally she made a note. She didn't know if her other gift was from death, but she'd always told the children that they had a lazy eye and a business eye. There were two ways of looking at the world. The lazy eye just saw the surface. The business eye saw through into the reality beneath. She turned a page. Seen through her business eye, history was very strange indeed. The scars stood out. The history of the country of Ephebe was puzzling, for example. Either its famous philosophers lived for a very long time, or they inherited their names, or extra bits had been stitched into history there. The history of Omnia was a mess. Two centuries had been folded into one by the look of it, and it was only because of the mindset of the Omnians, whose religion in any case mixed the past and future with the present, that it could possibly have passed unnoticed. And what about Coombe Valley? Everyone knew that there had been a famous battle there between dwarfs and trolls and mercenaries on both sides, but how many battles had there actually been? Historians talked about the valley being in just the right place in disputed territory to become more or less the preferred local pitch for all confrontations, but you could just as easily believe, at least you could if you had a grandfather called Death, that a patch that just happened to fit had been welded into history several times, so that different generations went round through the whole stupid disaster again and again, shouting, Remember Coombe Valley, as they did so. Every society needs a cry like that, but only in a very few do they come out with the complete, unvarnished version, which is, Remember the atrocity committed against us last time that will excuse the atrocity that we're about to commit today, and on, on, hurrah! There were anomalies everywhere and no one had noticed. You had to hand it to human beings. They had one of the strangest powers in the universe. Even her grandfather had remarked upon it. 
No other species anywhere in the world had invented boredom. Perhaps it was boredom, not intelligence, that had propelled them up the evolutionary ladder. Trolls and dwarfs had it too, that strange ability to look at the universe and think, Oh, the same as yesterday, how dull. I wonder what happens if I bang this rock on that head. And along with this had come the contrary power to make things normal. The world changed mightily, and within a few days humans considered it was normal. They had the most amazing ability to shut out and forget what didn't fit. They told themselves little stories to explain away the inexplicable, to make things normal. Historians were especially good at it. If it suddenly looked as though hardly anything had happened in the 14th century, they'd weigh in with 20 different theories. Not one of these would be that maybe most of the time had been cut out and pasted into the 19th century, where the crash had not left enough coherent time for everything that needed to happen, because it only takes a week to invent the horse collar. End of CD 5